Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar involving and supporting family caregivers in care planning and delivery. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on September 14, 2017. In this podcast, Allison DeBecca, nurse practitioner and instructor at Baylor College of Medicine, discusses assessing caregivers' readiness to learn. Hello. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about is readiness to learn. There are roles for the learners as well as the teachers. The first role of the learner will be to be receptive, willing, and able to learn. But the role of the teacher is going to be understanding these needs. As busy as we may be when we're in our teacher role, we must be willing to stop. And no matter how much we think it is important that they learn, um, if the learning is not going to be effective. But I would like to say that I feel that this is very rare. I would like to say that I feel like this is going to be very rare, and there's rarely a time when there isn't something that a learner can take on. Finally, um, we have to remember that timing is everything, and this is very true in teaching. We need to make sure that the physical and psychological comfort is assessed to start with, and making sure that this is the right time to teach patients make sure that we're not wasting not only our time nor theirs. Next slide. So we can use the mnemonic PEAK for this assessment. First would be for physical readiness. As we heard about earlier, is the task that we're asking caregivers to complete going to be affected by the caregiver's height, weight, age difference, um, the physical demands of a bedbound or totally dependent care recipient can be daunting. That would lead us to E, the emotional readiness. Um, we're going to talk about in a minute the support system of the care recipients. And does the caregiver have a large support system, a small support system? Do they have anxiety of their own? What is their um, developmental stage? I know I have caregivers who sometimes are either a lot older than the care recipient or even a lot younger in where they are in their developmental stage for understanding this. The next D is experimental. <clears throat> what are their coping mechanisms? What, how do they feel that they have control over this situation? And what is their orientation of the situation? Is this a child who has lived a long distance away for many years or is this someone who has lived maybe even with the care recipient in the same house. The knowledge um, would, be the, would be the last one, and um, assessing that is, is very obvious, I would think. But in my own role as a nurse, sometimes I've had caregivers who are also in the healthcare pro uh, profession, and I assume that they may know something that um, we should never do. Also making sure that they don't have different learning styles written um, Learning styles as their, um, what they prefer. Would they like something to be written, verbal, or maybe sent home for them to read later? We all know the saying, it takes a village to raise a child, but the same can be for this patient population. We've already heard that um, the family caregivers give up, uh, make up most of who provides this care. Um, just to say this again, the informal caregiver are usually unpaid. They could be the spouse, partner, family member, friend, neighbor, um, and only one in four of these caregivers is going to get some sort of extra help from our healthcare system. 
And again, the value of these services to our um, to these care recipients is massive. In 2013, it was estimated to be 470 billion. So, what can we do to help? Um, we must get creative. Um, the inner circle, of course, is going to be what we need to investigate. I encourage them, are my caregivers, and even if the care recipients are with them, to think, list, brainstorm, um, immediate family, extended family, friends, trusted community members. We can move outward into our community, um, religious organization, nonprofits, such as um, Meals on Wheels in many communities, organizations such as the Alzheimer's Association, Parkinson's Association, American Heart Association for resources, not only for disease processes, but the resources in the community. The private or formal caregivers, private pay caregivers, is um, sometimes an option and can be explored. I know it's in Texas we use um, the Department of Aging and Disability often for uh, caregivers, um, but that will have a financial um, requirement. Finally, I encourage patients, especially in what we heard about the sandwich generation, to use the web to coordinate care. You can start very simple um, and using Word documents to email um, calendars or needs out to groups, group text messages. I know people can use Google Docs or shared doc systems to make sure that everyone in this inner circle is informed of the needs. But then you can also think broader, Facebook, social media, um, there's a lot of support groups out there. And then there's also scheduling apps or scheduling websites, which are free. <clears throat> and this really helps coordinate a group to be on the same page about the needs. These are two online resources that I have recommended and have also used personally. Um, on these, there's a, usually a care coordinator who sets up the, um, the website, and you can put, for example, on the Lotus Helping Hands, you can put requests for someone to drive the care recipient, make meals, um, put special occasions so that everyone's aware of. And I know the Lotus Slides, uh, I'm sorry, the Lotus Helping Hands has an app as well. So with these websites, and just in general, we need to have a leader, a coordinator, a ringmaster, someone who's in charge and someone who's going to make decisions. And Fiona's going to speak to that um, in just a little bit. Um, but I think it's important to note, is this decision maker going to be present and available? Um, is this person going to have the ability to use the phone, email, the web to coordinate the help needed? For example, let's say the head of a family is an elderly wife and the care recipient is the husband. Can she coordinate all of this? Or maybe is there a daughter or a son that would be better able to handle this, that, uh, this task? And this person should be able to be the delegator. Um, finally, speaking to this leader or coordinator and giving realistic expectations as I think very important there was a caregiver survey from AARP, and they asked um, caregivers 
to identify the main problem with the person they were caring for. And the number one response was old age. So these, pa these caregivers didn't know the exact disease process they were taking care of. For example, if a patient is diagnosed with early dementia and their life expectancy may be 10 years, this might have financial impact um, to decisions that they make. Or if there's a progressing neurological disease and the family sees or the caregivers see that the patient's walking now, they might need not understand that they may need assisted devices, mobility aids in the future. So if the caregivers are trying to decide where this person should age and one family member has a first floor house with a bedroom and a bathroom that's easily accessible and another family member has a second story townhome, if they understand that these future needs may change, they may better make decisions now. This is just a very brief case study of a 92-year-old I take care of with Alzheimer's dementia. Um, she had a pelvic fracture and has a history of extreme anxiety. She has six daughters and, I'm sorry, six sons and one daughter, and she's lived with the daughter for many years. Um, the daughter's also a small business owner, so she usually wasn't present for my um, appointments, but she is the primary decision maker. So while she would set up an um, a schedule for her family to take care of um, the patient, um, even though I would be with the brothers or a sister-in-law during my visits, I always knew that I needed to call and check with um, the, the daughter, the primary caregiver, I'm the primary decision maker and the leader. Um, when this burden for 24-7 care became too great, they were able to pool money and send patients to a respite care two or three times a week. Next slide. And this leads us to different um, support systems for our caregivers. Respite care was one of them. Um, I spoke earlier of the Alzheimer's Association, Parkinson's, American Heart Association. Not only do they have information about the disease processes, but they often have education and training programs. They have support groups. And I know in our area, in Houston, um, the Alzheimer's Association, they even have um, classes for the care, care recipients to attend while the caregivers go to support groups or do training classes. There's also home modifications that often can be provided by churches or Boy Scouts, transportation. I know we have a van service in our area that we help coordinate or uh, set up our patients with. And then I'd also like to speak about family meetings. I know this can be very time consuming, but these can give you um, big rewards by finding out the leader, making sure everyone's on the same page. And at these family meetings, you um, may find that there's different, different cultural expectations of aging that um, might come up that you didn't know about before. Um, in the August 2017 gerontologist, um, there was a um, study done that showed that while African-American and Latinos may expect less age-related functional decline, Koreans and Chinese um, cultures usually expect more age-related functional decline. So there can be a difference um, in perspective in that that can come out um, when doing these assessments. The traditional gender roles um, in the last caregiver 
survey in 2015 from the AARP, they did say that still 60% of caregivers are female, but that means there is 40% that are male, and different issues regarding um, just everyday care of a son taking care of his mother, being able to openly assess that his needs or his questions is important to make sure that everyone gets adequate care. I um, do house calls, um, and so I see multi-generational living probably more often than in a clinic setting. Um, I think it's great. There's, we all know that children do better when they're living with their grandparents, and there's many rewards from that, as well as from the grandparents. But there is a safety um, assessment that I think is important to um, bring up, meaning um, children around different equipment and medication, making sure that it's secure and safe, and also um, fall risks, toys, things that are out, um, making sure the care recipient is, um, is uh, in a safe environment as well. Um, we heard about perceptions. I just would like to speak about perceptions of um, placement. Um, again, open-ended questions is always good. How has previous family members or close friends aged? Um, what do you consider aging in place? For some people, that may mean care recipients staying in their own home, moving to family members' home. Um, in some cultures and in some communities, I've had caregivers who have never known anyone to move to a nursing home. And so they don't know if that is an option for their culture or community. And I think that's when it's important for us to educate on the differences between um, assisted living facility, personal care homes, nursing facilities, specialty facilities, memory cares, et cetera. And then again, asking open-ended questions about the experience, their previous experiences with people who are aging. Have they had positive or ne negative experiences when going to the hospital? Have they ever known um, someone who has been on hospice? And understanding that perspective. And in summary, um, the Assessing the readiness to learn is essential, um, and um, making sure that we educate our caregivers on um, what the help is available. And of course, our goal is to implement um, a tailored strategy um, that aligns with the family as well as the care recipient's um, preferences. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovation and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.